This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Avengers, Age of Ultron is garbage, folks. Is it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't know the difference, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Look at that. That is a werewolf. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Denny Geek Presents Marvel Standom. I'm Mike Chikini, the editor-in-chief of Denny Geek, and with me this week, Denny Geek News and Features Editor Kirsten Howard, TV Editor Alec Wajalid, and please welcome writer and media critic, Mr. Mick Wright. Mick, Hello. you do some interesting work in the pop culture space. Why don't you let everybody know what that is and where they can find you because i think it'll give them a good idea of why you are the perfect guest for a show talking about secret invasion uh well yeah i thank you for having me on i'm i'm literally talking to you from um uh, a bridge in london if you can hear like just a, a, a london bus just went past um i i'm a media critic i i do mostly do stuff about um police corruption and things like that but i was a music journalist and I do talk about Marvel quite a lot. I'm on um, It's Good But It Sucks quite often. So I like to talk about Marvel on there. And uh, you asked me to come on here, I guess, because of that. And uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us, especially since you are clearly on some kind of uh, potentially scrolly secret mission. Uh, so that's pretty, <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. You're adding some real authenticity to our vibe this week. And you know what? And speaking of authenticity, I just want to point out that the Marvel Standom opening credits, folks, are not made by AI. They are made by our brilliant producer, Andrew Halley. Uh, so, look, obviously, I was not here for Secret Invasion Episode 1 last week because I was violently ill. But, Kirsty, why don't you tell us what went down in Episode 2, and then we'll really kick this show into gear. I can do. In the second episode of Marvel's Secret Invasion, we get a flashback to the 90s where Nick is recruiting the lost refugee scrolls to his undiscovered spy plans. In the present day, Talos reveals that there are now one million scrolls on Earth, and Gravik takes over as Scroll General in a secret meeting with several scrolls posing as world leaders. Meanwhile, Rhodey rebuffs Nick's appeal for help, and Nick returns to his secret wife who is one of the scrolls we met in the 90s flashback scene. Oh, and Gravik is trying to create super scrolls, but I'm sure that'll turn out fine. I know that reaction to episode one was, let's just kind of charitably say muted, I felt. Personally, I felt like this episode was a, was a big step up, but what, what did everybody else think of this one? Uh, Mick, let's, let's start with you. I want to know your general thoughts on the show and the vibe so far, but specifically this episode. 
Well, what it's got had me thinking about is is Winter Soldier and all of that kind of seventies paranoia, um, like uh, Day of the Jackal, Day of the Condor, like uh, kind of stuff, like where you have a lot of dark rooms, you know, parking garages, weird dark streets at night. Um, I actually thought episode one was good. My kid is thirteen; she liked it. She's like the best Marvel critic I know because. If she will watch a whole episode, then it's good. Like there have been shows that she bugged out of. Like she bugged out of Miss Marvel, surprisingly, but um, just didn't hold her attention. Um, I I like it because I like the show because I like a lot of shadows and darkness and and intrigue. And I, well, I've always, I've been waiting for scrolls to really be full. I mean, I know we had it in Captain Marvel, but it felt a bit sort of half-assed to me in that film. A lot of things about that film felt half-assed particularly someone from who grew up in the 90s. Even the 90s use of music in that film was a bit uh, to me. This episode, I always love when we see how morally debased Nick Fury is because it's really important to realise that he just will do whatever he needs to do. Because, um, like, he's not... I don't, you know, the thing for me is, like, Samuel L. Jackson, I always think back to Jules in Pulp Fiction. All Samuel L. Jackson characters have a kind of moral... Um, ambiguity to them I think that's definitely happening with Fury here and I, I kind of like that he's you know being a piece of shit because like he's not a hero he's a he's an operator and you know in my in my day job of dealing news reporting I've met a lot of mercenaries and you know Nick Fury's a mercenary isn't he he, he gets the job done yes and you know what Kirsty, I think, I think... <laughs> I think I think we should bounce right to Kirsty here because Kirsty in your review which folks can read at dennygeek.com slash marvel you speak uh, pretty strongly to your feelings about how this episode casts Nick Fury. What do you think here? I think it's pretty fascinating that uh, Nick Fury is the villain of this show in a lot of ways. <laughs> He's certainly not the hero. And I love that the show is doing that with his character. I do think they'll find a way to turn it around by the end so that Nick is in the best light possible going forward. But uh, at the same time, I, I love that it, they're showing us that he he's a bad guy that has used people who is in the opening scene is essentially re recruiting a child soldier um, with very little pushback. It's good stuff. Um, a lot of the bits of this episode that I particularly like were the talky scenes, you know, the, the scene with um, Nick and Rhodey, the scene with Nick and Talos, where they're just being allowed to talk and play off each other and, and maybe discuss things that don't seem you know, too relevant, but they are relevant in, in the terms of their, their character development and also their relationship. And it, it feels like um, those things have been missing from many of these MCU shows where we're, we're bouncing to the next explosion or cameo or Easter egg um, and trying to keep the energy up um, instead of actually, you know, focusing on the writing and the characters and why we should care about them and making them uh, flawed and complex. So I appreciated this episode a lot more than the premiere, which is pretty messy. Alec, how about you? I think I concur with Kirsten almost entirely. Um, wow. I was <laughs> uh, maybe not almost entirely. Oh, okay. Um, I was spectacularly cranky about episode one. You were. Uh, I thought it was so boring. Um, it sucked. I did not understand why this needed to exist. 
Like, I feel like when you're judging Marvel properties, the question is, is this better than nothing? Because nothing's not that bad. Like, you can just, like, sit there and twiddle your thumbs. Like, it's not a bad way to spend uh, 30 minutes to an hour. I thought nothing was far preferable to episode one. <laughs> but this, I'm starting to see the vision a bit in episode two. And it's be it comes down to exactly what Kirsten said, which is the writing. The script is just better. It's not great. It's not perfect. But... It feels like the characters are actually characters and they have something to say. Uh, and I, I agree. I, I, this, this, these movies and this franchise is at its best when it's letting its characters play off of each other. Uh, that's supposed to be the advantage of having such a huge storytelling universe as we get to live in these small moments between relative bit players like Fury and Rhodey. Um, and that scene worked really well. Even the stuff that normally would seem kind of cringe or cliche, like uh, Nick's line of, I'm Nick Fury, even when I'm out, I'm in. Like, that should be an enormous eye roll for me. But in context, it kind of works. This is a market improvement. I'm not fully on Team Secret Invasion yet. It still kind of strikes me as slight and unnecessary. But I'm seeing the shape now of, of a TV show that could be and maybe will be in the remaining four episodes. I feel like you're all going to come back and realize that uh, the episode one was doing something that the whole series needed. I don't want to be a dick, but I will be. I, I think that Marvel fans often have this attitude with shows that if the first episode doesn't hit you straight away, that you think that they don't know what they're doing. And I think if they kill the arc on this, you'll come back to episode one and go, ah, okay, they were slow burning that and that worked. But like, yeah. Also, Nick Fury saying cool shit is good. Like, he should say cool shit. Like, I like it when he says cool shit. I used to read the old Nick Fury comics when he was still white and he used to say cool shit. Just say cool stuff. That's like what he's good at. I don't know that I've ever had a complete turnaround on my feelings on, certainly not on a Marvel series from episode one to episode two, the way that I did with this one. And, you know, Mick, you have a point. I just felt that even with that perspective episode one was just like so heavy-handed with its exposition and i'm always being kind of mindful of like i was watching this going oh man this is gonna feel like homework for people you know what i mean like what are you know what are casual fans gonna gonna think you know what but one of the reasons i watch these shows with my 13 year old is that she consumes this stuff without all the like back knowledge that we have and, and she thought it was funny and cool and she enjoyed that people shape-shifted and she loved seeing like, she was like, oh, that guy was in Black Panther. Like, I remember that guy. Like, so I get it. And obviously at a level of being a fan who's been a fan for a long time, I totally get what you're saying. And there is, a, it should do better, but I gave it a lot of latitude because for instance, loads of people hate Love and Thunder, right? But I went with her to see it at the cinema. She loved it. So the experience for me was great because she loved that film. Now, that film has loads of problems. But if the 13, you know, 12-year-old when she saw it, likes it, I sort of think, hey, Marvel's doing its job, which is it's a fun universe. But you, you're all right. Everything you're saying is right. But then I'm also saying, hey, like a 13-year-old really liked it. So maybe, like, it can't be that bad. We were discussing um, some of this last week in, in terms of like, can someone come to this and not have watched any of the prior MCU stuff and be a complete newbie and enjoy the show on that level? Do, uh, do they care None. that 
Everett Ross is a scroll? Do they care that Maria Hill's dead within that first episode? Do those moments hit as much for somebody who's just watching the first episode of a random show as they do for somebody who's already involved in the MCU? Who's doing that though? Like, well, who are these people? Because <laughs> I don't understand why you'd want to watch it if you didn't, you weren't in. This is like, I'm Nick Fury, I'm always in. Like, if you're a Marvel, you have to be a Marvel fan to watch this show. No one else is watching it. It's like, who the fuck watched Moon Knight unless they're a Marvel fan? No one. Like, no one came in, uh, like, blank for that. But that's becoming part of Marvel's problem, though, is that, you know, this is not the audience juggernaut that it once was. At some point, I think they have to start considering that there is a perception among the general public now, which was not the case you know, even three years ago that, oh, like somebody asked me on Twitter today, like, cause I just like casually posted on Twitter, like, wow, I really, I loved episode two of this, which I did not love episode one. And, and somebody was just like, if I just know the broad strokes of Marvel, can I watch this? And I did actually say, you know what? I might not have said this after, after episode one, but after watching episode two, yes, you're good. I said, the one thing that it would really help to have seen is Captain Marvel. But even I, Episode two did a good job of kind of catching folks up on that. I'm trying to give this a pretty wide berth here. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I've been more and more mindful lately of like the perception among friends of mine who like Marvel, but are not as all in on it as say we are, who are starting to go, yeah, I can't keep up with this stuff anymore. And I think that's something they need to address. Maybe it needs to be more like the comics in the sense that you always have some properties that are a way in. Right. And then there are some things that are for people who are hardcore into it, because like, yes, we're kind of, we're kind of ourselves about this, because one of the problems we have is like we want it to like have loads of deep cut stuff. People do admit it. People want stuff to go. I am a big Marvel fan and I like to know, like have some deep cut stuff. And then we also say, oh, casuals won't like this. And I don't really know what Marvel's meant to do, because you want some hardcore stuff, right? You want some hardcore stuff. And then you also want to, to talk about this like imaginary like person who's never seen stuff. I also think first comic I remember reading really, really religiously apart in DC, it was Death of Superman arc, right? Which is amazing. And it's, it's terrible, but it's amazing. You know, Rise of Superman is awful. There's lots of reasons to say it's awful. But in Marvel, it's Maximum Carnage, right? And I didn't know oh, anything wow, about yeah. symbiotes. I didn't know anything about symbiotes, symbiotes or anything like that, right? And I just kind of learned. And I didn't have the internet to do that. I just read comics and basically went, okay, Carnage is really horrible. Venom's like horrible, but not as horrible. So like sometimes we have this expectation that, that people are stupid or people won't do the homework. Sometimes you've got to do the homework. Marvel's a really big universe. Fucking do the homework. Sorry, if you won't do the homework, it isn't for you. It's not like Disney doesn't have lots of properties you can go, you can join in with. So I don't know. I think we're sometimes too harsh on them. But may, I'm being, am I being the contrarian here? I suppose so. It's because no, I'm a scroll. Look, usually it's me. Just one last point on this is that the idea that this episode really hammers home just how we could charitably say morally ambiguous Nick Fury is. Nick Fury is suddenly a better villain than like 90% of actual MCU villains. Uh, and I think that's great. And the fact that I'm still rooting for him, 
you know, the fact that I'm still kind of like, well, you know, yes, he was manipulating these people, but I think there was also a certain, like, like he did also like truly embrace them and their culture to some degree where he, he really does believe that he's doing the right thing. He didn't necessarily know that there were going to be a million of them on the planet. Like this is one of the more nuanced looks at any major character in the MCU that we've seen in a long time time i have genuinely conflicting feelings about you know cheering for him in those badass moments like when he's you know when he's dealing with roadie um you know i thought the conversation with with him and talos on the train was both compelling and uncomfortable it's it's good stuff like i'm really pleasantly surprised this time around now this is my fault but i i you probably talked about this in the past right but who are your who's your favorite Marvel villain in the film so far? Because for me, Zemo is one of the best. And I love that because you look at him and you go, yeah, you're kind of right. And in Black Panther as well, you see a villain and you go, yeah, you're basically right there. For me, it's always the best time when you, you can find yourself saying, well, actually, I can see their point. The worst villains are where it's like cartoonish and it's like, I want to destroy the universe. And you're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yes, I, I think Maybe. Killmonger is at the very top. I think Zemo's fantastic. Oh, look, I thought Thanos was great. I think Thanos was an incredibly, incredibly effective on like every level, you know, but there's been a trend and we've talked about this on the show before. Like there's there's also like very much a trend in the MCU of kind of like sanding the edges off the villains and making them lovable. Whereas here with Nick Fury, we have a character that we are ostensibly supposed to root for and now they are making it harder and harder to do that. And I think that's I think that's a really nice change of pace. Should we talk about those opening credits or should we should we move deeper into the uncomfortable political messaging of this show? Yeah, I think in my uh, my review initially of the first episode, I said that the uh, opening credits looked uh, pretty great. It wasn't until I was watching it on my TV afterwards because I'd watched it on like a, a screener on my tablet. And it was quite small and I couldn't really see them, but I thought, oh, the colors are nice. You know, <laughs> these are nice paintings. Uh, it wasn't until it was, it was like suddenly, you know, with the magic eye painting coming into focus when I watched it on the, uh, the 43 inch TV or whatever downstairs <laughs> when it was on Disney Plus and went, hang on a second. I'm not sure about this, guys. This, this might be a bit, um, yeah, a bit controversial, and I guess it was, well, at least online. I'm sure normal people don't care about this, but um, they did get into a bit of hot water um, on social media and stuff from people who weren't happy with them using AI for the opening credits on this one. They had their thematic reasons for doing so, but um, it's upset a lot of artists, especially in the climate um, that we're in at the moment with overworked VFX artists and uh, people on strike. We should have absolutely stand against Disney doing this, 100%, because it only goes in a bad direction for artists. And I just, you know, I, I write a lot about AI stuff. My wife is an expert in AI, like she's an academic who writes about it. And we were talking about creativity in AI today. And AI isn't creative. AI is like a parrot, like a horrible parrot. And Disney should know better than to do that. You know, the amount that Marvel relies on VFX artists to make incredible stuff, like, you know, the, the best films have the best VFX and sometimes Marvel's cheaped out on VFX and we as fans have said that, you know, when you see it and you think this VFX is dog shit and it's dog shit when you go cheap, like you need great artists to make great work and, and super, super hero films need really good VFX. 
because the suspension of disbelief is a higher level for for a superhero world you know absolutely agree i mean like like never mind the fact that it's like hey read the room guys you know like <laughs> the timing couldn't have been worse you know if, if the if the climate was different i can see a world where they're like oh yeah we deliberately did this so that it's unsettling and weird and blah, 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 blah. but like no screw that somebody pointed out even something as relatively simple quote unquote right as as the jessica jones opening credits they showed like the number of people that it took to make those compared to the number of people that were credited just to make the credits on secret invasion and and it's not comparable you know like like it's it is absolutely a case of artists not getting work not getting paid when they should it is a rubicon that the biggest brand in entertainment is crossing at the worst possible time uh, it, it's, and it will be scriptwriters next there was a good review review in sight and sound um about talking about citadel the amazon property and saying this could have been written by ai it's so generic right and we are going to get to a point particularly with stuff that's action orientated where they will get ai to write the script and look i am a professional writer and i do not want uh, you know, we all like look. We all are here. I think. You know, we do not want AI writing um, stories because it will become so generic. And Marvel already gives us a lot of generic shit, so we should really stand against this. This is the line in the sand, and you know, Marvel, like the Marvel brand, going all the way back to Jack Kirby, has been screwing artists. And I feel like this is not the same, but it is definitely part of that lineage. And like, like it has to stop. And the fact that that controversy happened the same week that they released that absurd Stan Lee infomercial on Disney Plus, where it's like, once again, Saint Stan taking credit for like, you know, for all the work that was really done by Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and who else, like, it, it was just again read at, at minimum read the room guys <laughs> and the the kirby and ditko families how much shit are they expected to go through at a certain point how much are we gonna stop like pissing on those legacies and we like the only way to stop disney disney just cares about money so we have to make it clear to them that we won't buy this stuff if it's not made by real people who give a shit and care like I mean, Alan Moore has got lots of issues, but he's been saying this for years about DC and the way DC treats, say, the Watchmen property. We need to think about this and say, you know, only great stuff gets made by people who make creative leaps. Like some of the best stuff and the best comics come from people who, who, who made stuff that no one was thinking of. And, you know, I don't, Guardians wouldn't be the way it is if, if there hadn't been some wild choices in those comics. Like, you know, who thought Rocket would be such a big character? Not many people. I want to talk a little bit about the the some of the political themes of this show. And, you know, the thing that struck me in episode one was like right out of the gate. You know, you had that paranoid rant from that guy about, you know, it's like, oh, OK. So, you know, this is something where you have the type of person who is who is clearly presenting uh, like a certain side of an argument about about, you know, refugee crises and things like that. And of course, as we go on, and particularly in episode two, we're starting to 
safety, more more nuanced element to this. And like, you know, Marvel is not always great with their political messaging. There's definitely some of that here. But I feel like we are seeing more and more of like the kind of, you know, what they're actually trying to say, as opposed to what it seemed like they were saying at first. But I wonder, like, what other elements, you know, we can see here, you know, Captain America and the Winter Soldier, for example, you know, was very much a product of the post-war on terror, like, you know, post George W. Bush years in the United States and like the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D. and everything that was related to that. So I'm curious, like where people see this show reflecting our current political moment. You know, the thing that always got me with Winter Soldier is they didn't follow it through well. I know they sort of did in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but I felt like we had a reset in a way. Like, I don't think that even now, even in Secret Invasion, Fury hasn't got this thing of like, God, I worked for basically Nazis for years. Like that hasn't followed through enough. And I will say as someone who deals with police corruption a lot in the real world, that the paranoid rant is not too far from the reality of things. I mean, what you should go back to is, you know, President Eisenhower, when he's stopping being president, says, beware of the military industrial complex. This is a huge problem. You can't have this. And so he'd been a general in World War II and then he was president and he went, hey, guys, this is some shit and you need not to do this. No, no one paid attention. And that's where we are now. And the mad thing with Marvel and therefore Disney doing it is that they've got DeSantis really screwing with the kind of easy um, access to um, money and power that Disney have had for a long time. DeSantis won't be president because Disney won't allow it. So that's interesting, right? Disney's kind of in its own way, it's evil empire, right? Like Disney will not be screwed with. Disney has incredible political power. Disney basically owns Florida. It's interesting, right? So when Disney does pop political things about conspiracy, I do slightly go, well, your original founder was a Nazi or at least a fascist, and you have a lot of political power. And then you do these things that are about paranoia and politics. But really, you know, if Disney doesn't want someone to be president, he will not be president. And I guarantee you, DeSantis doesn't get to be president. He went for Disney. What a mug. What an absolute rube. That was a big mistake. I can think of about a dozen reasons that DeSantis <laughs> won't be president. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's a shit politician. He's no good. But it was so right. interesting. But, you know, Disney had loads of carve outs. People need to look up the way that Disney World and Disneyland basically function as, as like separate states. It's fascinating. Like their cops can do whatever they want. It's crazy. The politics of the MCU in this show in general are kind of like incomprehensible just because of there's so many cooks in the kitchen and there's so many different creative voices from project to project. Because at the end of Captain Marvel, scrolls are very clearly refugees, people who need help in a home. And there's still that here, but now there's like this evil seedy underbelling of this refugee crisis that's going to kill people. The, the, the politics of Marvel movies are kind of all over the place. And I think that just reflects how many people work on them. In this case, at least, I, I kind of like how they're approaching the geopolitics of it all more so than the spy thriller aspect. Because we've talked about, you know, this is a paranoid thriller, Days of the Condor, Spies, Winter Soldier, and all that. I feel like aside from that opening, like, Charlie Day in the with the chalkboard and it's always sunny scene, we haven't gotten a lot of, like, that sense of paranoia, even though a scroll could be anybody. Um, but what we have got 
or like some kind of interesting geopolitical reactions. I kind of like how much of a dick Rhodey is now. Like he is incredibly American, <laughs> like really like parroting the party line of like, I'm here in London because I want to be here, not because I was summoned. Now listen here, you little European peasants. That rings true to me. And I think that adds something to the show and adds something to the characters. And I think the show is operating better on that geopolitical level now than it is with its scroll storyline and then than it is with its uh, kind of paranoid thriller aspect. Yeah, there's the, the sort of um, the scroll paranoia element of it is occasionally quite outlandish. You know, at the end of the day, these are, you know, people running around in goofy green masks or whatever. And, and it's a very dour, dour tone to the rest of the show. Um, so it, it could it, it could have tonal issues um, if you wanted to see it that way. And there is a scene in this episode where, you know, Gravit goes and we find the world leaders and the media spokesman from the US. I forget his name, but it's Christopher McDonald, right? Who's terrific in so many things. I just love him. And, and they're sitting around the table and it could all be very ridiculous. But I feel like Kingsley Benadir, his performance is so good and so like uh, sort of like low-key blistering, you know, where he you can tell that he is just absolutely single-minded about this and he has been planning this for so long and he is so fraught with like rage and and the desire to just get something done. And I feel like a lot of people, especially, you know, who have become sick of the system and the way things work for them. I think anyone can relate to that on a basic level where you just like the system isn't working. The things that we were promised aren't coming. In fact, they're taking more from us every day. What can we do? It's easy to empathize with where he's coming from, even though we don't know the depths of his uh, issues with Fury just yet. I think there's a couple of things where this is this if you want to go outside of the the world of the show and say there are two ways this can be looked at like it can go very left-wing political or very right-wing um it sort of reminds me of um they live right because i i refer to they live a lot because i think as a media critic they live's a really good text saying you know there's the outer message and the inner message there's the underlying there's the subtle message and there's the overall the, the shouted message but the trouble is they live is also used by um anti-semites and like uh, psychotic people on the right to talk about like lizard people right and i think the problem with scrolls as a concept when you have people on the on the right on the internet is a lot of stuff around like pizza gate or um bohemian grove is weird right it is weird um that definitely is weird but they, but there is a lot of conspiracy theories about like hidden elites right and the worry for me was with the scrolls being as alex said the scrolls having previously been refugees in a very clearly just refugees in this in captain marvel is when you make them baddies in this to the real life politics the worry is that you start to frame refugees as a date as the enemy within the danger within and i think disney has to be very careful with that because it almost becomes a right-wing text that says yeah when you allow you know to, to talk about it from a british perspective the muslims into the country right they're all dangerous kind of thing and of course the fact is we actually know that refugees are economically very positive 
for a country, socially very positive for a country. Uh, of course, you always have some issues, but broadly, you know, immigration is good. Bringing in refugees is good. And so I think Marvel needs to be really careful with this because the right could enjoy this as a text that allows them to play all sorts of games around the dangerous other, right? And of course, Secret Invasion, Scrolls, all this kind of stuff was like pre-9-11. All of this stuff is comic book stuff from pre-9-11 or, or, you know, early 2000s kind of stuff. And I, I do worry about it from that perspective. And I know that's like a real downer on a show about like comic book TV shows, but that stuff, the, 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 that storyline they need to be really careful about and I think it helps that Talos is a good guy you're right and there are good scrolls but mm, it's risky we've been talking about this you know that the, the messaging in episode one did feel like if you invite refugees into your home they will eventually steal your jobs or lives and then become violent or it it didn't seem like Marvel, what my worry is, is that Marvel can't be trusted with an issue like that in a limited series that they're pouring, you know, millions and millions of dollars into. I really hope that I'm wrong and that they, you know, follow through or at least develop it in an interesting way. But it, it is a worry. Look what they did with Scarlet Witch and grief, right? I've always thought Scarlet Witch, even in the comic book thing with that, it's like, grief uh, makes women irrational and murderous is the vibe for that right and i've never enjoyed that i never enjoy what they did with scarlet witch in x-men comics or in or in the in the films because like i like the scarlet witch and i think she's a good person and she's been through trauma and marvel's attitude to trauma is it turns you murderous and you might murder everyone that's kind of fuck they they, they do play with things on a level that's too cheap sometimes i've always thought about it with uncle ben even like because really, Peter shouldn't feel guilty about that. It's not his fault. They, it comes back to Uncle Stan, like, you know, that Mike was saying. Like, Stan loved to say, oh, you know, make these characters and they're really realistic. But actually, often Marvel plays very fast and loose with really serious stuff, with, which has implications that it doesn't, it doesn't take into account, you know? Even, like, think about Peter and Gamora. Like, Peter's, like, into this Gamora that's never been into him. And it's like, kind of like, I'm a nice guy. You should be my girlfriend again. No, she doesn't fucking know you. Chill the hell out, man. It's kind of creepy and weird. And it sort of says to a bunch of sad Marvel fans, oh, women should like be into you, even though they don't even know you exist. Like, I don't know. There's all kinds of implications and script writers need to think a bit harder about it. This coming from me, who at the start was like, Secret Invasion is really good. It is, <laughs> but it's got loads of issues. We well, wear everyone it, it, down it, eventually, Mick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I knew I'd get you in the end. The challenge <laughs> with doing political allegory in like a comic book context is that a lot of comic book characters and creatures are actually very dangerous. Uh, this is going to sound like weirdly racist for a not a creature that doesn't exist, but by its actual like DNA is inherently deceptive. <laughs> like it can change into something else. They they're they're very challenging for humanity to deal with. Whereas in our real world, like refugees are human beings. They're literally people. It's like in X-Men when like, remember the Senator in X-Men, Brian Singer's X-Men one, where he makes the point of like, do you, do you want someone out there who can walk phase through walls into your kitchen, like without you knowing about it? And I can see how that plays to the average person in the Marvel universe, like the average Midwestern voter. Isn't this the Slytherin problem, right? Which is like J.K. Rowling, right? Like her problems are many, right? But that she she then later on in the books has to try and justify 
justify like, oh, no, there's some good Slytherins, you know, like actually like, you know, it's actually that their cunning is good. Like often we write these characters that are like just bad. Right. And then you have to try and backpedal really hard and explain, oh, there's kind of some good ones because the allegory is really screwed up. Right. Because Harry Potter doesn't work because basically you go, oh, we have a whole house that's just dickheads. Like, this is the house of the evil dickheads. And when the Battle of Hogwarts happens, we have to put them in the basement because they're such dickheads. Whereas, like, scrolls, what they did well in Captain Marvel was to say, hey, some scrolls are kind of fun. Like, the, the switch of saying some Kree are assholes and some scrolls are actually nice, good. That was good. But now they're kind of undermining that. And that's difficult because you sort of go, okay, Talos is cool, but like, Oh, he got a million people. The, the number thing is odd as well, right? Because the, the fascists love to talk about we're being swamped by refugees. And the problem that Disney's created here is a million scrolls swamping Earth. That's fucked when you talk about it as a as a as a as an, a, a kind of you know a thematic thing. Because actually a million people is nothing. A million scrolls is nothing. You could easily fit a million scrolls on Earth and also. Frankly, at this point, hasn't Earth been used to like alien invasion? Couldn't all the governments just go, oh, we have these dudes. They're our friends. Uh, here they are. They're like these green dudes. And everyone be like, oh, yeah, OK, because we remember when aliens tried to destroy New York. And uh, we're kind of cool with that now. It, it, sometimes if you play the logic out, it doesn't work. The best thing they could do is say, OK, come and live here. Like we gave the Asgardians like new Asgard, right? How are the Asgardians worse than the Skrulls? Right. right. The Asgardians. And actually, Jesus Christ, the allegory is horrible, because what you're saying is scrolls are green, colored people, bad Asgardians, basically white. I know, like we had Heimdall, but Heimdall's dead by the time they have new Asgard. Right. There's Valkyrie. And there's Valkyrie. And there's yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> but they all look like humans. OK, but in this allegory, they all look like humans. Right. Scrolls right. don't. So they're the other. And this is all about othering and that's kind of screwed up well but it plays historically in the u.s i mean in world war ii we rounded up the japanese on the west coast you know and like why were they rounding up the japanese as opposed to the german like Ger they weren't rounding up german americans they weren't rounding up my grandparents they weren't rounding up italian americans we were at war with italy too like it's pretty obvious like and what's screwed up about it is george takai yeah. still here talking about that yeah, he's still alive and, and it, talking it, about it, saying I was a kid and you did this to me. It does kind of play historically. And I will say, look, this is this is going to be like the discourse around this show is going to be difficult and it should be. Yeah, but it does help that they have made the, the villain of the series pretty compelling so far. You know, like this is this is another one of those cases where I'm like, but you are going to have the discourse that the villain of the series is an African-American man. Why is it not a white yeah. dude doing it? Because predominantly it's white dudes who have uh, yes. suppressed refugees, not African-American people. So there's that whole thing. And then because, of course, you go back and it's like it was a good choice to make Nick Fury African-American. But now you've got to now it's complex because he's an African-American man who is a, who is a agent of the state doing state violence. So that complex that's complicated. I, do, Man, I just wanted to I talk do, about comic books. <laughs> I do like that the show is um, picking the legacy of Nick Fury as the man who put together the Avengers and helped save the world and, and is showing his flaws and his mistakes through the eyes of the people he's wronged. Uh, I'm not sure this series can handle those themes. 
but we'll see what happens in the next four episodes and take a look back maybe maybe like Mick says even that first episode will um run a lot smoother and we'll look back on it more warmly what I love about Danny Geek is you do these great recaps of like episode by episode but then every time when you get to six episodes or nine or ten episodes once you can come back and then often episode one you look at in a different light based on episode whatever the last episode right but you know I'm not gonna say that what you do for a living is bad because I love it and I'm a, a big fan I love reading the recap but you, you always have to look retrospectively don't you because like I I really wasn't sure how WandaVision was going to stick the landing and it did so and I actually thought that um Falcon and Winter Soldier was better than most people think it is so there's you know it's different you know we, we all have our sort of vibe with this don't we I think we do. We do that in life. You know, we process things day to day and then we look back a few weeks later, a few months later, a few years later, and we see things that we did differently and we see things that we consumed differently. Um, but I, I don't think there's any harm in talking about it in the moment or retrospectively or looking forward at things. Um, well, that's but the fun I, of I, it, right? That's right, what that's, being that's a fan a is good. Exactly. But, you know, I, I do get co uh, comments on my reviews and always have, which people like, why are you reviewing it for an episode? You don't know what's going to happen next, you know. Um, why can't we look back at the series at the end? That makes more sense. But shouldn't you then, like, you could honestly just say, do you know how many people want to read these? Because, you know, like, people really want to... Every time I watch an episode, I immediately go and read what people have to say about it. I hate that kind of thing because re in reality... You know, it's why sites like Den Geek exist, because people want to analyze this stuff in real time. Of course they do. We can do both. It's good. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we take it too seriously. We said after we talked about racism and everything and like, you know, the history of, of America. But again, that in itself is fun. Sorry, uh, just sent me that Andrew surreptitiously put the uh, denofgeek.com slash Marvel <laughs> sign on, <laughs> on the screen during that. Um, I don't know whether anyone wants to talk about Super Scrolls. I put it on the run of show. Um, this would be the fan portion, basically, of the show where we talk about comics. I have a whatever. question. Yeah, go on. So as a non-comic reader and as somebody really only whose introduction to Scrolls was Captain Marvel, how do scrolls work? It seems like they need to acquire DNA or something because when in that comic we read, uh, Meet the Scrolls, uh, at one point the father gives the daughter a little watch to better assist in her transformations. In this show, I, I think it implies that the new scroll can't um, transform into just anybody. He has to meet that American guy that he is impersonating first. Um, but later on, somebody impersonates or the, the bad guy impersonates Nick Fury pretty effortlessly. And then now we're collecting DNA to make super scrolls. Um, what is the science of scrolls? I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I'm glad we're all on the same page. <laughs> I'm not the scroll scientist, Alec. Come on. All right. It's like anything in Marvel. It's whatever suits the plot. Correct. I do like that, um, you know, in the comics, basically the, the super scroll in the comics is one who has the powers simultaneously of each member of the Fantastic Four, where obviously they can't do that here. 
So we see on the screen like how they are building their Super Scrolls from existing characters in the MCU. Like, you know, we see Groot, we see Call Obsidian, you know, there's Extremis Tech involved. So I think that is, this is like just good old fashioned MCU reverse engineering of, you know, like a concept that the actual comic book version does not fit in the moment. So they're finding another cool way to do it. And I am looking forward to seeing how they, how they pull this one off. Is this going to draw in some Fantastic Four shit or give us some, like, you know, kind of um, foreshadowing Fantastic Four coming? I know it's still a while off, but it feel, like Scrolls was so big in Fantastic Four. It feels like that's something they're going to bring us at some point. I mean, Kirsty has watched me for three years now look between the lines for any hint of actual Fantastic Four stuff. I will say... And I, I have to think this was intentional because the scrolls of the MCU are so different in terms of philosophy, portrayal, et cetera, et cetera, so different from the scrolls of the comic, right? But during the flashback, when Fury is giving his speech about, you know, why the scrolls should follow him and he's making his promises and whatever, he says, this involves you putting on a new face and keeping it. And I have to feel like that is kind of a sideways nod to the very first scroll story, which was like, was that Fantastic Four number two, which ended with Reed Richards tricking the remaining scrolls on Earth, basically being like, okay, like you, you can live out your lives not in captivity, but you're going to stay in one form. And he turned them into cows, like, so they're like three scroll cows like forever yeah so so i feel like what fury was doing here was i feel like that was kind of like a sideways nod to that and then like the torture scene taking place in a meat locker where i'm pretty sure there are three cows hanging there like like um i feel like this was a nod to that very very first scroll story uh, you know, without them having to like really engage with how different the scrolls are, um, you know, and rightfully so. I think they're way more nuanced and way more interesting in the MCU than than they are in the comics. They are going to have to feed in some Fantastic Four stuff soon, surely. Like, and, and um, I guess we're getting them from the multiverse, right? I, I I don't know, but I assume that they just come from another dimension because I people keep saying we're not going to get an origin story. But I feel scrolls must be the way in because scrolls were massive in Fantastic Four, like always. But they're also saying they're not going to put Doctor Doom in that movie. So who the hell? Oh, knows? I hate that stuff. <laughs> Come on, Latveria, Doctor Doom. That's what we need. I, like it, uh, the last time I did, um, it's good, but it sucks. Was about um the last you know terrible Fantastic Four film, which I which is a kind of good sci-fi film if it's not a Fantastic Four film. But God, can't you do Doctor Doom right? Just do Latveria. It's yes. like Doom bots and Doom. I want that. It's such a fun character. If you do him right. And now the nerd has come out. <laughs> the yeah. best yeah. Marvel character. <laughs> yeah, I love Doom. Doom's amazing. Also, I love MF Doom. And like, there's so many great samples from that um, Fantastic Four cartoon on his song. So anyway. And then, of course, there's the ending of this episode where it's we finally meet Priscilla Fury. She's a scroll, and in fact, she seems to be. Is that the same scroll who 
you know, introduced him to child soldier graphic earlier in the episode. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, we have been told in the Winter Soldier that Nick Fury is is married, but we've never met his wife. And now we have. And um, I don't know how she's put up with him, if I'm honest. Like if if my husband <laughs> had promised me a new home planet and 30 years later hadn't delivered, that'd be more than like, you know, picking up some undies off the floor with some skid marks in and having to put them in the laundry hamper or something. That's that's some that's some shit that would ruin a marriage. I, I, I don't understand how it's lasted this long. And who got snapped and who buggered off to a space station for ages. Right. Like the man right. is a pain in the ass. Terrible husband. But we do get our first Otis Redding needle drop, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I knew that's all you would care about. You would know this. <laughs> Who sampled that Otis Redding song into a really good rap song? I can't remember. Kanye West and Jay-Z. There we go. I'm very curious to learn more about her because anybody, as Kirsty mentions, like, you know, anybody that could put up with Nick Fury for 30 years has to be uh, pretty remarkable herself. And, you know, despite the fact that this show does seem to be very much about Nick Fury you know, being morally ambiguous at best. This is a fascinating character. This is a riveting Sam Jackson performance. Even that last little low-key surprise, I love that that was the note they chose to end on rather than, and here's another, like, surprise scroll reveal, or you know what I mean? Like, I thought, like, ending with with that warm embrace with husband and wife was a was a very... Very different touch and another indicator of, you know, the, the the approach this show is taking. They have to be careful with the scroll reveals. Don't do too many. Otherwise, we'll just get bored. Any final thoughts or theories before we sign off for today, folks? I've just been dying to mention that a 2,000 person death count that Rhodey notes could possibly triple once all the wreckage is cleared is insane for that attack in what was essentially a small public park in Moscow. <laughs> Potentially 6,000 deaths is two 9-11s from just like a couple of bombs in a public park that Nick Fury stood next to one of them and was not exploded. Did you text me after the uh, after you'd watched it and said that the death toll was like 10,000 or something. You were like, that's three 9-11s. I was like... So, yeah, that's that's always the metric. The <laughs> 9-11's the baseline. It's two 9-11s, because they say 2,000's reported death total. Rhodey says it could triple once the debris is cleared. So that is two 9-11s. I just had to get that off my chest. I've been just... You know what You know what? the problem there is? It's the problem we always have, right? Which, which is that Marvel shifts the power levels all the time. It's like whenever the Hulk has a fight, right? Because we know from the comics the power of the Hulk, but sometimes you have to have the Hulk be underpowered because the fight wouldn't work. Like Thor versus the Hulk is always interesting, right? Because we know their power levels from comics and really the fight in Ragnarok like wouldn't be, there's no balance to that. And I think it comes back to when we're talking about the scrolls and saying, well, how does scroll science work? Ultimately, whatever works. And I, I, I have talked to Tim Wormson about this before where I said, basically, Sometimes we just sort of have to go, if it works for the story, it works. If the internal logic of this series works, then you kind of go with it. But you're right, the 9-11 thing's crazy. Like, like, how many people are at a German market? I've been to German markets, you know? It's crazy. I mean, it has to be big enough to trigger an actual war between, you know, 
Uh, so you're right. It, it is about. The I think they should have done a massive festival or whatever. But then, of course, you come back to yeah. the actual logistics of filming, and they went, "Well, what can we film?" And, and and like and then you don't want to think about that too much because when you start thinking, well, what could they afford or what was the budget? That's the bad vibe. Like you can't get into that mentally because then you're totally out of the show. But like Alex, totally right. That just made no sense and was dumb as shit. But like we just let it slide, I guess. That's the least of this show's problems right now. <laughs> yeah, my my final thought is like based on everything we said today, and 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 it's actually been quite nice to talk it through because as I've gone along, I've thought more about it. Hey, I still think it's a fun show. I do think it works. I like paranoid stuff. So because because I spend my whole time dealing with real conspiracies and real corruption so it's sort of a vibe i'm into but can it stick the landing probably the hardest landing of any tv show so far i don't know maybe it will maybe it won't but when we're talking about the politics i do think it matters i do think that refugees in the real world have a shit time and i want marvel to stick the landing and i don't want it to be just evil scrolls because that would be very disappointing and i think they really have to do something very nuanced and can they manage it hard to say at the moment the jury is out yeah we shall see Nick, before we sign off why don't you remind folks where they can find you where they can read your work yeah i'm i'm at broken bottle boy on twitter and you can get me on substack brokenbottleboy.substack.com thanks a lot for having me I've, I've had a great time of course thanks for being here folks thanks for joining us don't forget to follow denny geek us on youtube and right here at twitch.tv slash denny geek tv we have more secret invasion coming your way in the coming weeks. So get your scrolly selves together. We are also at Marvel Standom on Twitter and Instagram. Drop us a line. Let us know your burning questions. Tell us your scroll theories. And don't forget to check out our other shows on the Denny Geek Network, like The Brilliant Talking Strange and DC Standom, hosted by yours truly. If you came in late, you can watch this entire episode on dennygeek.com or at our YouTube home at Den of Geek US. And don't forget to check out past episodes there as well. Thanks to our producer, Andrew Halley. Best there is. Special shout out, Mike Lahr. If you're listening on audio, he's the one making this show all can be. Thanks to Lee Parham, who keeps everything rolling in the comments and moderating everything, making sure you're behaving. Most of all, though, thank you all for watching, listening, following, and subscribing. This has been Marvel Standom on the Den of Geek Network. I am not a scroll, I swear. Till next time, remember folks, we stand together.